0: Hi Marissa.
1: Hi
0: Paul. Hi, uh, are you free to talk?
1: I am, yes. Yeah.
0: That's great, thank you very much. Uh, I'll just explain a bit about the background uh, of what we're doing here. So these are half hour conversations around key challenges, policy challenges that we need to deal with in Northern Ireland. And yep. they are a follow up to a previous series of podcasts which asked More generic questions, but this one is trying to drill down into more policy detail. And this is funded by the Community Relations Council Media Grant Scheme, and it's put out by the Hollywell Trust, uh, which, as you probably know, is a peace and reconciliation charity based in Derry. Uh, The first one of the podcast went live yesterday, that's with Jess Sargent from the Institute for Government, and as well as going out as podcasts on the hollywood trust website they're also being promoted uh through a series of blogs on the slugger Tool website so that's just just for background if that's all right yep Okay, that's good. And it sounds as if the the quality of the recording is going to be good enough as well. So that's great. I'm recording this now. Okay, thanks, Marissa. Okay, just to introduce this. Now, you're an activist with PPR, uh, which is the Participation and the Practice of Rights, uh, which was founded by Anis McCormack. Do you want to say, first of all, a bit about PPR, though I should say before you start saying that, I, I, I should declare an interest here because in the past I have done work for PPR, paid work, and I have recently yeah. uh, on an unpaid basis in, been involved in a webcast for, with PPR as well. So just to get that out of the way. To say a bit about, uh, for, for people listening to this, what PPR is.
1: Yeah, PPR, as you say, Paul was founded by Inez McCormick, who was you know, a big trade union activist here in the north. Um, and she founded she founded this organisation and then around 2006, I think there was conversations and there was bits and pieces being done before that. But and around 2006, 2007, you know, um, a good bit after the Good Friday Agreement, when she had realised that the peace dividends of the Good Friday Agreement were not reaching those who were still most marginalised and disadvantaged in society. So it originated and it looked at things like housing and mental health, and in particular in North Belfast. And the reason being was North Belfast at that time had a, one of the highest um, housing need in the in the island, or in the six county, sorry, and also it had one of the highest rates of suicide. So that's where it originated. And it's now, um, as you know, it's spanned out and it's working across three jurisdictions, you know, north, south and over in... In Scotland, on um, various issues, including still including housing, homelessness, um, destitute asylum seekers and refugees, mental health, the right to work, right to welfare, um, along with travellers' rights and women's rights.
0: Okay, thank thanks, Marissa. That's that's very helpful. I mean, I've done a bit of work myself around the statistical piece, and I think it's just worth putting in some statistics here in Northern Ireland specifically, as at March last year. There were 38,000 applications from uh, households for social housing in Northern Ireland, uh, and of those, t- more than 26,000 were in housing stress, and just about 20,000 of those were accepted as being homeless, and yet. Social house building is only at around 1,700 new homes a year. So, just to put that into some statistical uh, position, and and clearly that influences your work, and you've been involved not just with PPR but also with equality can't, equality can't Wait. So, do you want to talk through a bit about how you see the challenge of homelessness in Northern Ireland? Yes, um, most
1: definitely. So just of those figures that you give out, um, of the 30,000. Just over 38,000 households, you know, as of December 2019, that was up six percent from March 2018. Um, those in, in, in housing stress was up 13 percent from March 2018, and those with full duty applicant status, which is needed in terms to be considered homeless as a statistic, was up 18 percent from 2018. Last year, across um, England, Scotland, Wales, and Northern Ireland, housing, you know, the need for housing had had failed, apart from in Northern Ireland, where it had risen slightly. Um, I've been involved since 2009 with Equality Can't Wait Build Homes Now. Um, I'm now specifically working on a homelessness project. But to put that into context, um, Paul, there is over 15,000 children under 18s living in housing stress in these six counties. That's an awful lot of children growing up in, you know, accommodation that's not suitable, in accommodation that's overcrowded, in hostels, in single lets, and children um, who have become institutionalised and don't know any different. I don't believe that, you know, in the 21st century, in a in a place that I think what is the sixth richest nation or whatever in the Western world, that there should be that many people and including children living in housing stress. There's something seriously and fundamentally wrong that when it comes to building homes, they are not being built for purpose. You know, we, we have seen for talk's sake, if you want to give, you know, the Mackie site in West Belfast as an example here, massive piece of publicly owned land in the highest um, area of need in Belfast with, within a few miles radius there's five homeless hostels right and that includes women and children single males not one of these people in these hostels were ever consulted on whether or not they would like to see homes built on mackeys and instead those the power to be people in government decided that homes weren't needed yet you know there's been plans for private developers to you know build homes and build apartments in a in a site just adjacent, Mackies. That doesn't make any sense.
0: And why why is it that the situation, as you as you put it, is getting so much worse?
1: Um, to be totally honest, I I don't believe that the current um, housing situation, or sorry, the current housing system, is fit for purpose. You no, know, it wasn't fit fit for purpose, and it wasn't working properly before this crisis that we're, we're currently going through. Um. All those people who were in housing stress and who were already, you know, most disadvantaged, most marginalized, whether it be Catholics on the waiting list, you know, women, asylum seekers, refugees, travelers, were already, you know, in a bad situation. And this this current crisis has just highlighted how bad and how much of a bad situation that they were in. Um, I believe that it, it comes down to, you know, well, if you look, and I don't know all the facts or figures, and I, I won't claim to know the ins and outs of like. The whole Tribeca thing about the Belfast, you know, city centre and that developing, and but to me that was you know great. What I took away from that and those council meetings that I was you know a part of and sat in the gallery and listened to was that our council, you know, when our councillors, not all of them, a lot, um, you know, stood up and says no to Tribeca or, but they didn't consider what the young people, what the children in those hostels, what the women who were waiting, you know, ten, twelve plus years on a home what their views or what they needed in and around that area. So to me, that they, they were happy enough to make money, you know, more office blocks than they were to put the social need of people ahead of that.
0: I, I think we'll move, we'll go back to the issue around Tribeca and the future of urban centres in a moment, but... Before we do that, one of the things... I did some work for the Detail website a few months ago, and the thing which really shocked me there was the difference between Northern Ireland and the other three nations of the United Kingdom in terms of the growth of the private rental sector in Northern Ireland. It is now the only part of the UK where the private rental sector is bigger than the social housing sector. Um, And that seems to me, that feels like something that's very significant. And also, I wonder whether... As a society, our concern about social housing has meant we've overlooked the conditions in much of the private rental housing sector.
1: Um, and on that, I couldn't, you know, not agree. I wholeheartedly believe that there needs to be a, re- a there needs to be a total reform of of the private housing sector. There needs to be, you know, much more consistent and stringent. Um, policies in place, because we have seen time and time again, I mean, people making money off should it be the housing executive or a housing association, or whoever using them as single acts, you know, for talk's sake, there's a lot we have we work with a lot of um, people who've been displaced, a lot of Syrian refugees, a lot of people, you know, put here under the United Nations repli- or the, the scheme where or... um, they're coming from places like Syria and being placed in homes here and they're not fit for purpose at all whatsoever and even on that if there's an issue you know we work with people who are living in these homes and say if it's dampness extreme dampness, or you know if there's a leak or if something's happening they have to go through the landlord to go through you know an agency to go back to the housing executive so many people like there's not one clear path of here's an issue how do we fix it and these people are left you know running in a circle trying to get something that should be, First of all, it shouldn't have been placed in homes off that standard. But second of all, she shouldn't have to go through all these all these loopholes to get the basics. Um, also, the, the, the prices and the rent prices in, in private rentals. And, you know, the house executive will only pay X amount and you have to make up the shortfall. For people on benefits, for people who have you know, no recourse to public funds, that's quite difficult, if not sometimes impossible. Um, where there has been but even recently the current policies around you know no evictions need 12 weeks notice or something something to that effect was put out um it would make me think that is that going to stay in place or is that going to be rolled back because we have so many families who have tried to set up homes in private rented homes because that's all they're able to access to be then told i want you out within months where do they go do you know what i mean
0: yeah, I mean, it, a little, there's a lot of political attention, um, without naming particular estates, on the conditions in some of the housing executive estates and the question about why people in those estates are in some cases looking to paramilitary organisations. Yet when I go to Belfast and I go to Arts Road, the conditions I see in housing there seem to be significantly worse than you'd find in any social housing estate. And I wonder whether that's something that just gets... It's a bit overlooked in the political discourse.
1: Um, and I worked on the Newt Nards Road. I worked um, for HRD over there, and I used to say all the time, you know, I know there's a massive discrepancy and difference in terms of housing need between Catholics and Protestants, um, but that's not to say that the Protestants living in you know, PUL communities do not have a housing need because they do. It's a very type of different type of housing need. It's that the houses are quite old and they need things like, you know, double glazing and damp courses, sorry, damp courses and new heating systems put in. Um, There shouldn't be, there shouldn't be anybody living in a home in this day and age, you know, seriously affected by damp mould. Economy 7 heating. There's there's people still living in homes with Economy 7 heating. There has been, I mean, X amount of research done of how detrimental this can be to people's um, resp- respiratory systems. So I, I agree with you there that there's a lot of things that have been overlooked um, and put down to there's no budget or, you know, we're getting to that. That's the next phase. Or we had to take this, you know, from this budget and place it into there. But there, there shouldn't be anybody living in homes that are substandard, regardless of where in Belfast it is.
0: And of course, when we're talking about homelessness in Northern Ireland, typically we're talking about people that aren't actually on the street. But we also have a serious problem with street homelessness in Northern Ireland, which you can see if you if you go around by Botanic Avenue in Belfast or if you go around parts of the city centre in Derry. Um, Yes, it's off the streets at the moment because of the COVID-19 crisis, but we have an endemic problem of street homelessness as well, don't we, in Northern Ireland?
1: Yeah, most definitely. And as you say, um, these people have been lifted off the street as of, you know, a few weeks ago. And just on that, you know, in comparison to England, for toxic, the changes, the, the current, you know, emergency changes to our legislation have been quite that minor. The Minister for Housing in England, you know, has called the Task Force, has made it a duty for local councils to house homeless people in B&Bs and and hotels and things like that here, it's much more ad hoc. It's much more, you know, the guidance was was on emergency powers, but they're unspecified. Um, And something along the lines of, you know, the housing executive are still going to fulfill their statutory homeless obligations. But I have an example of that. I have an example of, um, and by the way, she was a frontline worker working as an interpreter for the NHS who was sleeping, basically sleeping rough. Who was put into what was being deemed as a single let? Um, it was an Airbnb. She then, you know, was told that this may cost up to seven hundred and fifty pound per month. She couldn't afford that, so where they've lifted people off the street and they've put them into into um certain accommodation, which is absolutely fantastic to see. It, it would be my worry that what happens after is this going to be rolled back? Do these people then are they? Put back onto the street, or where do these people go? It also highlights, Paul, that you know, it's a matter of will, because before COVID nineteen, there was no mention of lifting people off the street and putting them into the unused B and or hotels or whatever it was, and all of a sudden it can happen, you know, with emergency legislation and emergency power. So I think it's, it's quite um, it, it's, it was quite good to see. I would be worried about what happens after. Well, I think oh, that, yes, we do but ha- oh, do have a, an
0: issue with street homelessness. I, well, I think the, the 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 challenge, in a way, is that uh, I, I don't want to sound uh, cynical about this, but the reality is that if people are street sleeping, then they are very prone to all sorts of infections, and in the case of COVID nineteen, they can be a conduit for spreading the COVID nineteen infection across wider society. Now, that, in a sense, has been recognised as part of our society's response to the coronavirus crisis. But, in a sense, that has to be a permanent response, doesn't it? Because whatever one feels about street homelessness, then actually the fact that it represents a public health challenge and risk for the whole of society surely must make governments change their attitude towards street homelessness, doesn't it? I mean, most
1: definitely. And you would assume that logic and that, you know, sense would, would make that a reality and a permanent factor but I would seriously worry that, that, it, that it won't um, and when you're, when you're talking of street as you say of all the people that I work with you know of all these years of working with people living in hostels or in, you know in singlets and, and even people who've ended up on the street nobody wakes up in the morning and intentionally decides I'm going to be homeless today or if they do do you know what there are very very few people who are there because in some shape or form our system has failed them should it be i mean there was an excellent article out there recently by extern um around how people end up on the street you know there's no dual diagnosis system there's nobody that i've came across you know they take things like homelessness and say addiction is two separate things when when they shouldn't be treated as such you know they would come hand in hand or job losses and homelessness um there needs to be a much more coherent and a much more um you know, cross cross um departmental working on homelessness and a housing first model that has been proven, you know, in many Scandinavian countries and elsewhere in Europe to work where they place somebody in their own place and they surround that person with whatever help they need, should it be mental health, should it be addiction, you know. If that's there and then people have a safe place to go home to. That deserve, then they know that they can, you know, depend on other people around them to help.
0: I mean, in practical senses, I mean, who has key responsibility for addressing the challenge of street homelessness? I mean, who who goes out and talks to people who are homeless and on the streets and talks to them about their condition, about why they are there, about what their uh, health problems are? Who actually does this?
1: If I'm being totally honest... I know who do I know like the likes of charities like Extern um and other homeless like, outreach like the Wellcome Centre and people who do outreach would do that. I'm not sure and I couldn't tell you, maybe they do, I don't know. That anybody from say like you know, the Department for Health or the Public Health Agency or the Department for Communities would ever go out and do things like that. Maybe they do. I, I, I genuinely couldn't answer that fully. Um and to be totally honest, I wouldn't know. But what I do know is the charities that are on the street, and I know you're aware of them as well, and the people, you know, the likes of Paul McCusker, as a um, councillor, as a representative, is out on the street, and others are out on the street day in, day out working, you know, whether it is in soup kitchens or handing out essentials to people, they are out doing that job role. But that isn't necessarily, you know, their remit.
0: Mm, It does feel as if it's it's left to charities to deal with and the only other people I've seen uh, have been the PSNI uh, in an enforcement role. Uh, so that, that's not, that's not a, a, a social support network uh, that's being provided by our society, really, is it? I mean, it's interesting politically, in the South, homelessness, the housing crisis, street sleeping, it became a really key issue in the recent general election. But I don't get the sense that it's on the political radar in the North in anywhere near the same way as it is in the South.
1: No, it's it's not. And I know during the, the debate um there was, you know, figures bandied about and, and certain politicians trying to get one up and other politicians and stuff like that. Um I know that down south they calculate and um, you know, the way that they would consider homelessness is quite different from from up here in the north. But still, I mean, I would have went down to Dublin twice a month for um for work and you've only to walk up you know, one of the main streets in Dublin, to see the extent. And I'll be totally honest with you, I've never been in Belfast and seen a family homeless on the street or in Dublin. That's, exact, that's all I was seeing was women and kids, you know, families in sleeping bags. Not so much single people. Um, and it doesn't seem to be a big... It's not that it's not a big... It is, of course, it's, it's, it's an issue. It's a, it's a massive issue north and south. But I do believe that what you're saying politically, it's not always... You know, one of the main things that is brought up here mm. is not always, you know, something that. Um, we have any amount of people championing, you know, for young people, for homeless people, any amount of politicians at, whatever cost, bring it up, should it be in council or up at Stormont. Um, but I do not believe that it is on the radar, and people think it's much a social, co- you know, it is. It's a social need. It's not a commodity. People should have. Children should have their own home. Um, And I just
0: don't believe that that's on our political agenda. Yeah, as you say, uh, uh, the last time I was in Dublin when it was raining, you'd have to have been very hard-hearted not to feel upset at the extent of people who are street-sleeping in Dublin uh, in the rain. I mean, it's just astonishing. And that that clearly has energised the political conversation in the Republic, whereas perhaps it's a different demographic and perhaps there's other explanations in in the north
1: yeah no most definitely and um as you said you would be really hard pushed not to have felt some form of I mean there's something to be said about seeing three babies you know toddlers and steps and stairs sitting with their mummy on the corner of the street with this you know the, i think it would take you know blood from the but, uh, sorry, I'm actually getting choked up thinking about it because I remember passing and it wasn't just this one family. They were on every street corner in Dublin and mm. I just kept thinking to myself, what has happened in this, in this city that these people are sitting like this today? Mm. I like think there's, there's something that has to be fundamentally wrong that anybody, never made families, are on streets, but especially when it's families.
0: Now, you mentioned before about the Tribeca um, proposal. Uh, the development in the heart of the city, uh, looking at the old arcades areas uh, near the Cathedral Quarter. Um, And that raises a number of questions in terms of urban development, uh, because Tribeca was put forward on the assumption of the continued growth of the retail sector. My working assumption, as someone who studies the economy closely, is that retail will be fundamentally changed by COVID-19, that people are moving much more into online retail purchases And I don't think we can expect to return to the old style of retail. This raises questions about whether we should be moving forward with major retail developments in the in the hearts of our cities. And I know that Belfast City Council is looking to increase the the provision of homes in the city centre with more apartments being built. But I wonder whether we've got sufficiently uh, to grip with the challenges for urban development in the future in our big cities.
1: Um, and as you say, this crisis currently is going to change the face of that dramatically. You know, we've already seen some big name high street brands and chaps and um, chains in administration or possibly going to close down. Um, and, and yes, Belfast City Council has raised issues around homes and, uh, and apartments, but I mean, it's all well and good. See, let's pretend in an ideal world to say that there'd be no retail, there'd be no offices and we're going to just fill all this space to the brim with homes. Are them homes going to be affordable? Are they going to be, you know, accessible? Are they going to, That's that's the type of thing that when they talk about affordable and, and social homes and affordable homes, sometimes social homes aren't affordable to certain people. Mm. Um, we have worked and we've looked at, you know, different models with like, over in New York where they in compromise, you know, a whole range of disability access, you know, of support mechanisms in and around certain, I mean, we've seen it all over Belfast, Paul, where they, they just put up, you know, a housing development with nothing else there. Mm. I, think there's, I, I lived on one down at Sailor Town where for, you know, the best part of a the year, there wasn't even a crossing for me and, you know, the hundred other mothers with their kids to get across the, a motorway. In the morning, so it's things like that were never taken into consideration in and around the other time with those fifty two apartments and sixteen houses went up for toxic.
0: Mm, I remember, I or, remember in England something similar when Milton Keynes was developed. There's large scale housing before there was retail, a hospital, uh, other facilities, schools, leisure facilities, yeah. etc. So you you have to be clever with urban planning really to make communities work.
1: You really do, and I mean there's. Uh, in terms of the Mackey site, um, the young people have been working and have been looking at, have been working with developers and on architects and looking at things, you know, like certain places in, in Holland that seem, you know, there wasn't room for, for toxic say, 20 houses, with 20 gardens, but there's a community garden or there's, you know, a play facility and there's certain places where, you know, cars aren't allowed. So all that needs to be thought about as opposed to, let's just stick up 100 odd apartments. And tell people you can move in here if you want but can they move in can they afford to move in you know is it right for them and their family
0: in england one of the one of the measures that's been adopted is was, was when there was a reduction in demand for offices there were uh, simple planning routes to convert offices into homes but there have been criticisms that the homes were actually of poor quality do you see that as as a route as as perhaps there are fewer Offices and shops open in the city census as COVID nineteen has a longer term impact. Do you see see that as a, a route more conversions?
1: Um, I mean possibly. If you look at the amount of I mean this brought, like look at the amount of people working from home. Where before you maybe were told, you know, by your company it's not possible. Where now it is. I I'm hoping in terms of COVID nineteen, as much as it's been an absolute, you know, it's been a nightmare for people and it's been hard. But it's also opened up all these other avenues of well, you could work from home. So there's maybe there's space freed up and it's all well and good. You're talking about conversions They need to be, you know, proper. They need to be sustainable. They need to be affordable. Mm. They need to be right for, for the people and for the demographics um, of Belfast.
0: So, to, to cut to the the core here, Marissa, what is it that you're campaigning for? What would you like to see happen that changes the environment in terms of housing policy?
1: Um, well, first of all, I would like to see, you know, things like Mackies and other public land that is owned by the people of this city used appropriately. And that's saying that every piece of public land, you know, needs to be housing. People need to at least be consulted people need to be those in power need to be smart about that in terms of how they were able to literally overnight change policy and lift as you say homeless people off the street that this that shouldn't, we should never go back to having people on the street if that's the case you know there needs to be you know a proper and a functioning um body around housing the housing executive you know they're there they've been doing their job but they're no longer fit for purpose things have changed you know it 38,000 households deemed homeless um, here in the north is not acceptable. People need to be genuinely, when looking at, you know, urban regeneration or redeveloping pieces of land, need to be considering what is needed in this area. Is there a high need for housing? Let's take that into consideration.
0: Now, uh, at the risk of, of putting my own position in here, I mean, the, the, the key finding that I found for the, in the work that I did with PPR is that the, the most relevant available land in places like Belfast that could be used for social or affordable housing is damaged land. It's brownfield land. It's land that's been uh, chemically polluted over the years or whatever. And the cost of what's called remediating that land to make it available for housing is quite significant. And the only way you can make it work, even probably in the, in the marketplace for, uh, for uh, private accommodation, is by a statutory body taking financial responsibility for cleaning up that land before it's being used for housing. I mean, do you see that as being a a key requirement for moving forward?
1: I mean, it's going to have to be, realistically, because if there's all these pieces, I mean, if that's not going to be done, what what then happens to that piece of land? Does it it lay early? Does it, you know, does it stay like that forever? It can't. I mean, we have a growing demographic here in the north people need to be housed people need to be have a home something has to be done and again this this current um crisis has shown that money can't develop overnight from places you know we are always being told there's no money we can't do that i'm not saying that you know there's money for everything but surely surely if these pieces of land are going to like that forever or turned into things like car parks or whatever surely there could be some money somewhere to at least attempt to clean it up to place homes there
0: and of course the other policy challenge around this marissa is that actually the owners of what is pretty well derelict land that are using them for car parks the revenue return for this is very 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 attractive it's they make a lot of money i mean assuming that we don't actually lead to post-covid 19 a a significant reduction in commuting the the level of demand on car for car parking on those sites makes these sites very attractive for the people who own them and that becomes a really difficult thing to change that use to, to what might be regarded as more socially productive use by by building homes on them
1: and I mean, again, that's just more examples of, um, you know, money, profit before people, um, which I do believe needs to change for, you know, certain countries in and around Europe. Those have changed. I mean, there's certain places where you can't drive to, within a couple of miles of the city centre and it works perfectly. You know, at the it brings up a whole other question about public transport and, you know, better systems and stuff like that. But if they look at other countries and they look at how other places are able to do that, surely then that would cut down on the need, you know, or the want for all, those public, or for, all, sorry, for all those private car parking and then, and the money made out of those could be better put to use.
0: And, and just for context here, in case listeners don't know this, Belfast has the highest level of uh, traffic congestion of any city in the UK outside of London. So it is a serious problem. And that clearly has serious health problems in terms of air quality, as well as lack of productivity because people get stuck in their cars doing nothing. So we have that collection of policy challenges, which distill into a crisis for housing. And I think what you and I are both saying is that actually it's not possible to have a market solution to the problem of housing stress in Northern Ireland. Marissa, thank you very much indeed. That's really you're enjoyable. You're
1: welcome, Paul. Thank you. Thank you very
0: much indeed, Marissa. Thank you. Have a Cheers. Good day. And you. Cheers. Bye.